Welcome to the Ripcord Moment, a podcast focused on empowering owners to achieve their perfect landing, their perfect exit. For most owners, the majority of their net worth is tied up in their business, yet many owners struggle to create a plan that maximizes the value of their business with their personal goals and personal financial plan. Joe C2 is the host of the Ripcord Moment. He is a partner and senior VP with Morton Capital, an independent wealth management firm responsible for $2 billion in assets. As a trusted advisor for over 20 years, he guides owners through the exit planning process by leveraging his unique skill set as a chartered financial analyst, certified financial planner, and certified exit planning advisor. Now here's Joe with the Ripcord Moment. Business owners are today's American heroes. They innovate. They create jobs. They believe they can create a better future for their families and our country. So much attention is given to the start of the business, the idea, the technology, the fundraising, yet much less to the exit, as if it will magically take care of itself. When they do go to exit the business, it's a once-in-a-lifetime event. There is no do-over. Yet we see so many owners are ill-prepared to make this jump. This podcast is focused on learning from those entrepreneurs and team of advisors who have made the jump and sharing their best ideas with you. So when you're ready for your ripcord moment, you can execute and hit your perfect landing. Welcome to the ripcord moment. I am your host, Joe Situ. Today, we're joined by Kim Millman from the law offices of Kim Millman. Her practice focuses on estate planning for business owners and entrepreneurs. Her mantra is helping you with life, love, and loss. Prior to practicing uh, law as an estate attorney, she founded a teen apparel mail order uh, catalog, Girlfriends LA, which she grew to over 200 employees, produced 30 million catalogs annually, marketed to about eight and a half million teens, and she ultimately sold to a New York-based conglomerate. Kim, welcome to the Ripcord Moment. I'm excited about our, our discussion today. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. Well, Kim, let's jump in here. You were an entrepreneur before you got into being an estate attorney. And working in a family-run enterprise, talk to us about what that was like, how it impacted the overall business, and also explain your role in the family business. So when I say I was in a family enterprise, I was in every role in a family enterprise. And that goes both from the business itself to the role in the family. The business started when I was a child. I started working in the company when I was 10. Um, I, so I was the daughter, my sister worked there. So I worked with my sister. Over the years, we hired my cousins, my grandfather. So I have been every layer. Um, my parents sort of, my, my father was an entrepreneur his whole life, and he strongly believed in the family business entrepreneur lifestyle. So he literally groomed myself and my sister to be the succession plan. So I was groomed to be my father's succession plan. My sister was groomed to be my mother's succession. Um, my mother was the marketing and merchandising side. My father was the business and legal side. Unfortunately for him, my father passed away very suddenly, very young. Mm -hmm. And I was 23 years old and I was the CFO. So I went from the sweeping the floors to running the company from every perspective. At the time my father passed away, the company was much smaller and we had a, the fashion industry is a treacherous space to be in. And we moved from various portions of it over the years. Um, our family motto was um, hard workers, fast learners. 
So anytime there was a space in the market, we pivoted into that space. Ultimately, we found ourselves to be a, uh, we, we grew into a mail order catalog that we started out because we had been manufacturers and custom marketing to department and specialty stores. We decided to sell the product we sold to them to a mail order audience. We put a full page ad in 17 magazine. And on the day the ad hit, we got 6,000 phone calls. That so how did you, let's, let's jump in there real quick. How did you handle, it sounds like you were maybe understaffed. This oh, might have been overwhelming. So tell, walk us through what that was like. So that was a mind altering experience. We were totally unprepared. When we decided to pivot to the mail order industry and we had, we had been manufacturing for years and selling to that market for decades. So my, as my brother-in-law said, let's start a catalog. How hard could it be? So we hired a graphic designer and we had seven employees and four phone lines and we thought we were good to go. So let him real quick, the size of the company at this point was a total of seven people. Seven people. Okay, go ahead. So not including the owners. So yeah, seven people. And we were primarily selling to department and specialty stores. So we were selling to Macy's and Nordstrom. And you know they buy 20,000 pieces at a time as opposed to one. And we also were exclusively accessories, but the catalog sold everything, clothes, shoes, makeup, room decorations, everything. So yes, we were underprepared and we dropped our first catalog right on top of the Christmas season. Our first catalog came out in in October of 1997 and we had, it was a mess. It was a mess. (laughs) But as I said, hard workers, fast learners, we worked round the clock. We figured out to get the merchandise in. We instantly uh, contracted for two T1 phone lines, which is 24 lines each. We had 48 lines. We ramped up our staff. We took one of the existing storerooms of the building that we owned, converted into a call center, put in 12 cubicles and hired 12 operators to work 24-hour shifts. We've, we outsourced to an outside call center to take the overflow. And we, uh, we, we moved. We just, we had to. Um, so- we probably lost a lot of orders because we didn't do it fast enough, but sure. we were in great shape going forward. So let's let's talk a little bit about how does the stress of something like this from a business perspective, but you got all the members of the family involved, like what does that do to the family dynamics, but also what does that do to sort of the business itself? Talk us so, through that. So a family business has its own unique flavor to it. On the one hand, everybody is connected financially. So there is a tremendous amount of family harmony because you're all going for the same goal. It works a little better if you have defined roles in the business, but it doesn't necessarily translate to defined roles in the family. So I was the CFO. I was pulling the financial strings. My sister, who was on the marketing end, said she needed to you know, upgrade quantities. And I'm going, the cash flow is not there. We got to make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband was our IT side. He was in charge of all of our projections. The single hardest thing for me was being between my sister and my husband. And you guys uh, were married at the time, correct? We were mar- yeah, we were married. Okay. And, and we had three kids. My sister had two kids. Our, we oh, would wow. pick up our children from school, bring them to work and stay at work till midnight. We had a babysitter on staff. She was the highest paid, biggest bonus position in the company. Everybody knew she had direct access to the man- to the owners. And she had the most overtime, bar none. Sure, absolutely. Well, that allowed you guys to work around the clock. Yeah, so so that's, that's how we did it. We worked around the clock. 
the, the one thing about like my sister, you know, I grew up with my sister and my sister and my, we were groomed by my father, who's a very staunch, hard work ethic type of person. So my sister just assumed whenever there was a disagreement, I would agree with her because I was her sister. And my husband had this, I call it the green acres attitude. It was, oh, you are my wife, you know, the pitchfork. So when they didn't get along, I was like a human tug of war. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of stress. So let's fast forward a little bit. You know, you went through a mergers and acquisitions by selling this company to that New York conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Talk, a little, talk to the audience a little bit about what that experience was like, how prepared you were or weren't. What was it like working with professionals and maybe what you could have done uh, maybe even better? So we had done some minor m things on the other side. We had acquired a couple of going out of business type entities before. So I thought I knew how to do an M&A proposal and how to deal the whole project. Because of my role in the company, the primary source of contact for everybody involved on the both the sell side and the buy side was me. By sheer unfortunate, terrible luck, we were going through an IRS audit at the same time. So I would say, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you've heard this with other M&A situations where the, the entrepreneur thinks they know it all. They're making money. Things are good. They're growing like crazy. Money's rolling in. They know what they're doing. We're good. And, and the professionals I was working with, I had an M&A attorney. I had, I had a CPA. They're all telling me, you guys are not structured enough. You do not have the infrastructure in place. You're too dependent on the four of, the, of you, which were the owners. On top of that, I think my family had a particular problem that that we encountered is we were very, very hands-on. Girlfriends was thoroughly vertically integrated. We did everything. We designed the clothing. We designed the catalog. We had an in-house call center. We had an in-house distribution center. We had in-house operations. We made the clothes locally. Uh, We had an in-house cutting room. We did everything. I mean, the running joke in our family is if we could figure out how to grow the cotton, we do that too. So getting someone from the outside telling us, well, you guys are too too hands-on and you need more infrastructure in place and you need to have other people in higher positions that can move with the company. We didn't believe that. And, and I think we were wrong. So ultimately, you did, it sounds like you didn't take their advice and you went ahead with the transaction. Is that correct? Yeah. Really, the people we actually sold it to were the, were the number two buyers in our, in our history. We were in a much, much larger deal about five months prior to a much larger entity. And that deal fell apart. And I think part of the reason that fell apart is because the underlying infrastructure, they didn't see that. It sounds like what I'm hearing you say, Kim, is that in terms of what you now with hindsight see could have been done better is having essentially more of the infrastructure, what I call the tribal knowledge, which is oftentimes in the owner's heads mm-hmm. to other professionals. So there wasn't so much key man risk, for example, on the owners, having more of that infrastructure, systematized processes in place to allow for transferability to, to the acquirer might have helped with the deal. Yeah. And I think timing is a really big thing too. When we were in the, we ultimately sold the company in March of 2002, which if you think historically, that's shortly after 9-11. Right. That was not the, I mean, it was the best time to sell in terms of moving on and getting out. It was not the best time to sell in the history of the company. A year prior, we had a a, a year-over-year growth that was unbelievable. 9-11 impacted that. So we were not growing at the same rate. We right. didn't actually go down, but we sort of flatlined. And I think had we 
sold six months prior, we would have done much better. One of the things you're touching on, which I think is critical, is that for many owners, they can't control the timing. They can't control these external events. And so to the extent that they can concentrate on building these systems, having the right infrastructure in place, having the right management team in place, along the way as they're building the company, and rather than trying to perhaps do it right at the end as they're approaching the transaction, gives it more flexibility in terms of potentially the timing of when they sell at a more opportunistic time. Yeah. And I think when we originally were selling it, we were selling it to another clothing retailer in the same space, but they were not mail order. So they didn't, they had the the understanding of the, of the, of the market and the product, but they didn't have mail order and direct marketing. And this is really pre-internet. So it was before everybody had internet on their back end. The people we ended up selling to was an internet play and they were able to just move everything. And they did, they ended up taking every single, they, they, despite the fact that they promised us that they would keep our employees, some of which have worked for us for 20 years, six weeks after the sale, they fired everybody. Wow. Okay. That, how, how did you feel about that? I was, well, I mostly felt terrible, but we had, as a, as a family, made a decision that our employees were critical and we had, we thanked them for their anywhere from five to 25 years of service. So we had carved out a portion of the sale proceeds as a bonus structure to the employees. And that bonus structure was anywhere from two months to two years of pay. So in some ways you had given them a parachute. Right. Because but that, was, but that was, that was us, not the, not the the buyers. Yeah. And they, they hated that we did that. They really did not want to the buy the buyers. The, hated the buyers. Yeah. They, cause they didn't want mass exodus. Sure. Even though they were going to fire everybody anyways. They wanted to be on their terms, not on the employee's mm. terms. So they wouldn't let us give the, the bonuses. I mean, they were payroll. So they had to stay with the company. We didn't have the, the money into, to do it until after the transaction. So, so that bonus was actually structured as an after the fact holdback. And then they paid it out to the employees a month or two later, right? About the time they fired them all. Got it. But at least we at least we felt relieved that we had taken care of them to the best we could. And that was a thank you. It wasn't just it was designed to be a parachute, but it turned out to be. Sure. Kim, we're going to pause real briefly from uh, a word from our sponsor. As a part of our commitment to empowering business owners, we've partnered with sponsors that make this podcast possible. We've asked them to share a little bit about their ripcord moment and how they're helping owners hit their perfect landing. Morton Capital is a wealth advisory firm with the goal of helping families get the most life out of their wealth. We believe the most successful clients are those that have identified what is most important, family, travel, financial freedom, or protecting their nest egg. We then build a strategy that results in them spending more time doing the things they love. This is also our goal for our firm and our team. We are business owners ourselves, and have experienced the ripcord moment twice, once in 2006, and then again in 2013. The first landing ended up a little too bureaucratic with a lack of flexibility in how we ran our business and served our clients. The second transaction was much more successful because we focused on the things we valued, independence, opportunity, control, and the ability to run a business where people truly love coming to work. Our team today is stronger than ever, and our people are empowered to build strategic, innovative, and thoughtful plans that allow our clients to get more life out of their wealth. And we're back with Kim Millman here on the Ripcord Moment. Kim, let's uh, let's dive into really now your background, or now you're, you're, you've sold the business, 
you have to reinvent yourself. You move into the law world as a trust and estate attorney. Talk to the audience a little bit about your entrepreneurial background and how it helps you in your current profession. Well, I always think that entrepreneurs are a special type of person. They're not, it, it takes a special person to become an entrepreneur and, and stick with it and, and like it. And I think a non-entrepreneur doesn't quite understand how the entrepreneurial mind works. I think because I've been on both sides of that, I understand that. And I understand how your business is really an offshoot of you. It's kind of like a child. It's, it's you, you've, you've given birth to it. You've nurtured it. You've, you've grown it. And part of you wants to, you know, cut it loose and let it fly. And part of you wants to keep it living at home for forever. So it's, it was a difficult thought process to go through. And I think I, because I understand that, and I also understand how the entrepreneurial mind works, I think I'm uniquely situated to work with business owners. And a lot of my clients are business owners, but a lot of them aren't, because most people aren't. Sure, absolutely. And I agree with you. I mean, right, you've got the, they call it the ugly baby syndrome when very many owners think that they're, they're it, it, because they, they poured out their, their heart, their, everything into this business, no matter what, it is theirs. Right. And so that emotional process that they have to go through, I think, is so critical. We'll talk a little bit more about how you reconstructed your identity after selling the business. Maybe talk to us a little bit specifically about, right, we have a very, we've got a new administration in the office. There's a lot of concerns over uh, changing tax rates, what the new regime might do, the change in the business landscape, and what how you do what you do to benefit your clients in this environment. One of the things that I do as a general rule is I look at things, especially to my entrepreneurial clients, holistically. I know the trials and tribulations of being a business owner, especially in California, where much of the landscape is quite difficult. Things like labor laws and OSHA laws. So even if I don't understand the actual product they do, I understand the overall concept of, of having to, you know, be in, in 12 places at once. So one of the things that I have been able to do is for my clients that are business owners, I do everything I can to stay abreast of things that have nothing to do with my practice area, but I know they need. So I stay on top of labor laws. And I, when, when the, the law changes that affect anything to do with Cal OSHA that I, that I, I send them information about that. Um, uh, when COVID hit, I went to seminars on COVID. I sent all my employee, all my people that had employees, you got to do this. You got to do this. There's a new law, another law. <laughs> you got to do this. So, and, and, and I see them doing things wrong that, that could blow up terribly you know, not keeping their corporate records up or not keeping or, or, or not understanding how an employment situation could work. And, and, and many of these things have gotten much, much, much more hazardous and treacherous since I've left being a business owner. Yeah, it's even so, more complicated. I think we would both argue today in this environment than it may have been when you were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty bad then, but it's, it's I mean, 85 was, which was the, the inability to have contractors that was a killer. I mean, and, sure. and, and even things like changing overtime laws. And now, not, not my entrepreneurial clients, but just my normal people clients, because of labor laws, it even affects them because the laws for home health care and caretakers and babysitters, you know, everybody's an employer and they're sure. all subject to those employment laws. 
Now, bring that back though, in terms of obviously you're providing a tremendous amount of value, but your, you know, your your expertise really is in trust and estates planning for in specializing for business owners. So bring this a little more full full circle for us. I think what people what parents don't when you're trying to transfer from the first generation to the next generation. First of all, statistically, business transfer from generation to generation mostly does not work. I mean, historically, it doesn't work. Why do you think that is? Oh, I can tell you exactly from both personal experience and from the from the from the, the general landscape. So, the, a, assuming it starts with a husband and wife or a single family unit, that's one family unit. They're all together. They think together, even if there might be squabbles within the family. The husband and wife, as the founders, are literally one unit. They drop it down to the next generation. Well, maybe the siblings get along. Maybe they don't. Maybe somebody works in the company. Maybe somebody doesn't. But if you go into a third generation, now you've got cousins involved. You're not even in the same household. They're not even thinking the same. So the likelihood of having a full range of, of people, all with a common goal, they don't. And and a lot of it has to be with personality and skill set. I mean, if you've got somebody who who wants to be a doctor and the family business is draperies, it's not it's not going to work. There's no alignment there. Right. And and that, and that actually happens where there sure. and and the other thing is you've got something that's successful enough to even go into multiple generations, more likely than not the subsequent generations are being brought up wealthier than their prior generations and they have more time and money to do things. And that, I mean, in my in my own family, I started working when I was ten. I had no extracurricular life. I I didn't do anything except work in my family business. My kids, they had a you know they were in after school clubs and they went off to to do whatever they did and they didn't have the same kind of pull into the business that I did. Got it. Well, Kim, I want to move to our action items. You know, I call this a ripcord moment because I believe that for many owners. It's a once in a lifetime event where they actually make this jump from being an owner to selling it and transitioning it. And so, you know, the the analogy I use is that parachute, that ripcord's got to be ready. And so what would you say are two action items that owners should think about doing sooner rather than later uh, if they're going to contemplate an exit? I think outside of the stuff that I already mentioned in terms of preparing for the exit, I think the two action items I would say is think about life after the exit, because this is, again, something that I, I didn't understand and, and I was surprised when it happened. The first one is, is if you're going from being an entrepreneur and doing everything, you make all the decisions, you are, you know, everything from the top to the bottom in the company and, and decision making to now you work for the person who acquired you. Um, and I, I had never worked for anybody except for my parents. And I had no idea what that was like. Um, Shortly after the company that bought us was based in New York, two weeks after the deal closed, they summoned me to New York to meet with the CFO on the New York side. And I said, I don't want to go to New York. It had it was shortly after 9-11. I had no interest. I called my attorney and I said, I don't want to go to New York. Go talk to them. And he said, and I quote, go look in your bank account and go buy a plane ticket. Right. He said, you had to you swallow your pride, them. right? Well, yeah, he, they own you. Go. Right. So, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing is, is, Again, being an entrepreneur is a 24-7 job and you're winning and you're moving at full speed ahead. And then you're not. It's like hitting a brick wall. I had no idea what to do with myself. 
I had never done anything but work like this. And I, and I was all of a sudden I was, I didn't have money problems, but I was, I had nothing to do. And entrepreneurs as a general don't do well in the nothing to do department. So, yeah, so. I would imagine that, you know, because right, your mind's always churning, always having a problem solve, you know, deal, you know, hustle, do deals. And now it's like, well, now what? You know it. And, and I, and I, I finished off the deal and I decided, you know, I always wanted to go to law school. I think I'll go to law school. And I looked at the timing of it and I made this decision on January 31st. And then I discovered that law school applications were due on February 1st. So that, of course, was not a feasible alternative. So I lost an entire year where I basically, you know, slept until noon and did whatever I wanted. And then I went to law school the following year. But entrepreneurs don't really go in slow motion. So I finished law school a semester early um, and I decided in law school that my talents were business forecasting and planning and tax issues. And so estate planning was a was a perfect place for me. It was able I was able to use all the skill sets that I had as a as a business owner and a CFO to do the type of forward thinking and linear thinking that that I excelled in. And so um, I started off as an estate planner after passing the bar and I have loved it and never looked back. Uh, you're you're an excellent estate attorney here in the San Fernando Valley, uh, very well respected. And so, Kim, if someone wants to get a hold of you from our audience, what would be the best way they could reach out to you? So my website is Kim Millman Law, all one word, just K I M M I L L M A N L A W. My email is Kim at Kim Millman Law um, dot com, and my phone is eight one eight three four zero five seven six five. And sadly, I, as an attorney, I just like an entrepreneur, I pretty much work around the clock and I've been known to answer emails at all sorts of weird hours. <laughs> so some things don't change. It sounds like, Kim. no, yeah. not at all. Well, look, I want to thank you for being with us today, sharing your insights, your pearls of wisdom. It's really been a pleasure having this discussion. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ripcord Moment. If you'd like to connect, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or on email at jc2 at mortoncapital.com. The information presented is for discussion and illustrative purposes only. The views and opinions expressed by the speakers are as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These views should not be relied on for financial, tax, or legal advice. You should consult with your attorney, financial professional, or accountant before implementing any strategies or transactions concerning your finances. Morton Capital is an SEC-registered investment advisor, Assets under management data is as of 12-31-2019. The views expressed herein should not be relied on as investment advice and are not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any type of security. There's risk of loss investing in securities, including loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.